podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Thanks for choosing this free Anfield Index podcast. If you'd prefer to listen to this or any of our other shows without adverts, then now's the time to check out Anfield Index Pro. With AI Pro, you can supercharge your entire listening experience. You'll not only get all of our podcasts without the ads, but you'll have them far faster with our quick publish feature available exclusively for subscribers. AI Pro also puts you in the heart of our sound studio with an option to listen to many of our shows live and interact with the podcasters in real time as the shows are recording. Upgrading couldn't be easier. AI Pro is available on all popular podcast platforms and we have our own apps for Apple and Android. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com and get started today. Hello and welcome to AI Scouted on Anfield Index Pro. I'm Dave Hendrick, joined as always by Mr. Carl Matchett. How are you, sir? Not too bad for an international break. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm reveling in the international break. It allows me to talk about absolute nonsense that suits my fancy on two-footed. So, you know, that works for me. That seems to work for you at any time of the year on any podcast, to be perfectly yeah, it, honest. It doesn't It doesn't really matter. <laughs> I'll find a way to shoehorn in whatever I want to shoehorn in. And that's just how it is. We are under time constraints today, so don't want to waste any time with chit-chat, but I do hope your cup of tea is going down well. We have two questions, Carl, from Discord. One will be a quick one, and one will take a bit longer and the majority of this podcast. But before we get to them, I want to know your reaction to the news that Burnley look like they're in talks to sign Vuit from Wolfsburg to replace Chris Wood. Now, in my view, that's a significant upgrade. And I say that as someone who likes Chris Wood, but I think Veghorst is a good upgrade for Burnley and the perfect Burnley signing. Yeah, I'm a lot more comfortable with Veghorst as a as a Burnley target than I am of the ones we discussed in the podcast last week. Mm. Uh, it's It's a lot more... You could see him in a Burnley shirt. You could see him looking up towards the skies as the ball comes towards him in Burnley tactics. This is this is much more what we'd expect. And it's actually smart too. It, it plays mm. to their strengths. It is, uh, in pure goal-scoring terms, I think definitely an upgrade. And actually, He's a year I, younger as like, well. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I'm not altogether sure that time matters once you get to Burnley. But I think he is a player who would suit their... Not just their their tactics, but you know the the makeup of the team, the the squad mentality, the type of personalities that they have uh, in that team. I've I've quite wanted to see Wout in the Premier League uh, for quite a while, to be honest. Not that he's an unbelievably amazing player or anything. I just think that he's someone who would do well for quite a lot of sides who have been in the Premier League. So I think that's an interesting one. I think finance wise, obviously, it works out well for them. Uh, if if the reported figures are right, they should be able to invest in him and maybe even someone else as well. Uh, yeah, it looks like him and Orsic. Him and Orsic yeah. are the two they're looking to bring in. So, do, do you think does that mean four-two-three-one? Maybe McNeil on the left, Cornet on the right, and Orsic behind Veghorst, or Orsic left, McNeil right, and Cornet up front with? Yeah, I, I think they'll keep Cornet central as often as possible. I think he's made a real big difference to them. Mm. Just someone who can carry the ball quickly through the middle, who can really commit an extra defensive player. Uh, doesn't really move away from what they do in terms of the work rate, the off-the-ball movement, the fact that he can play out wide and play over the crosses and the rest of it, but he just gives them something extra as well. So I really yeah. like them with Corne through the middle. 
uh, and I hope that they don't move him away from that. Same. I have to say, I was getting excited about the idea of them signing Fafana, but it looks like that one has fallen by the wayside. Right, moving on to the questions that we have. This one is from Sydney Chiller. Would David Beckham be a right-back if he played today at a high-end club like a Trent Wright or a Nico upgrade? It's a bit of an insult to Beckham. Um, like a Trent Light or a Nico upgrade. Would, and would this have ended Gary Neville? Um, that's a, It's a good question. It really is an interesting one. My concern would be Beckham wasn't exactly the quickest player in the world, so I don't know if he could have played the way Trent does. Trent is under the radar quick when he gets flowing. But I, I do think it's an interesting idea. I think we actually saw little bits of what Beckham would be in the modern era when he was playing with England. Um, remember the, I want to say the 98 World Cup, maybe that's not quite right, but he played as wing back in a 3-5-2. And I could see that being the case for, for someone like him, not really a, a wide forward, definitely yeah. not an out-and-out right-back, not an attack-minded, overlapping right-back. But as a wing-back, you think of the way like Marcus Alonso, for example, for Chelsea, plays a, as a wing-back player. He's he's not pacey. He's not ridiculously good defensively. He's someone who'll get on the ball and get involved in combination play. He'll cross from deep, and then he'll get himself into the box as an extra forward. Uh, I think that's kind of the way that I would see Beckham playing the role. Uh, he did play, like I said, there for, for England quite a bit. Yeah. When it was a 3-5-2, and I think it was Darren Anderton played just a, a, inside of him in that midfield role. So as long as you've got you know that kind of player in the squad or that kind of manager who who likes that sort of tactics, then I could see that work well. And as for Neville, I think kind of the same. You know, in a, in the modern era, he'd be the right side of a back three. There's not too yeah. much difference in how he plays right back to um, Aspilicueta playing right centre back, for example, for Chelsea. So exactly. I think that there are. And you know, Neville was a centre back coming through the ranks yes. as well. For sure, yeah. There, there would, there would definitely be crossovers between what we saw, but not quite what they always did because mm. football has changed. I do also think you could use Beckham as a right back in a four if you use them sort of how City used Canseo, where when you have possession, he simply steps into central midfield next to your holding midfielder, and they form a double pivot in front of a back three with your left back tucking in and the other two stepping across. So he could do that side of it either. But look, Beckham was a really good player. He'd have found a way to work. He may well just have played the right side of a midfield three, similar yeah, exactly. to how De Bruyne does. even with some money. Yeah, that's exactly it. If he had ball winners around him, absolutely. Beckham was Beckham was low-key an intelligent player. Uh, doesn't get enough credit for that. Right, the main function of today then. This one is from Adam. Bit of a challenge. Pick an all-time 11 for players of each of the following. Were brilliant, but their career was ruined by injury. Were brilliant, but their career was ruined by their attitude or behaviour. Who wins in an all-fit, all-motivated cup final? Now, we don't have time to do both. So we're going to combine the two. And then what our final will be will be my team versus your team. So... A an 11 made up of players who should have been brilliant, but their careers were either ruined by injury or attitude. So let's start with this question. What formation have you gone for? Uh, at the minute, it is a 3-17-12. So I need to cut down a few midfielders as we go, and I'll probably end up with a 3-4-3. Three, three. Yeah. 
Okay, I've got I've got like a three. It's more of a yeah. It's it's a three four three, but one of my front three is is more of a midfielder. But yeah, right goalkeeper. I went Chris uh, Kirkland. Oh, fine. We've started the same. I can I can oh. I can change one. I I can change my goalkeeper. So we have no no no. It's fine. No, it's fine. It's fine. Um, I think right. I think he would have been like. I often look at England and this incredible group of talented players they have now, and I, I look at the goalkeeping position, the central defenders and the central midfielders, and I think, you know, in the 80s and 90s, England were always really strong in those positions, and there was a spell in the 90s when England had David Seaman at his best, Tim Flowers at his best, Nigel Martin at a very high level, and I wonder how it is that now they have such a poor collection of goalkeepers Chris Kirkland should have been the one great keeper they had post Seaman. There hasn't really been a great England goalkeeper since David Seaman. And Kirkland should have been that guy, but back injuries and different things really held him back. Yeah, when he came and played his first few games for Liverpool, I didn't really see him too much at Coventry, but when he played his first few games for Liverpool, the thing I really liked about him was how aggressive and on the front foot he was. He was obviously for such a really big guy. He was very very quick off his line not a high starting position but quick to come off his line and he would never be hesitant about flying into a a forward who was running through on goal or trying to come through like six bodies to collect a high ball or anything like that i really like that about him but it was you know a huge drop off to Mm. how he performed after the injuries it was very very much a goalkeeper on his line and inside the six yard box he became positionally much more like someone like Shea Given but without anywhere near the reflexes that someone like Given had you know he was like had trampolines in his feet but Chris Kirkland was a lot more about his his reach obviously his his height that sort of thing I think when he lost that aggressive side of his game where he would come and dominate the entirety of his box you kind of lost quite a lot of what Kirkland was really good at yeah he he tried to become a goalkeeper that he didn't have the skill set to become like you said he, he tried to become one of those reactive shot stoppers like given and he just that wasn't his game uh not of the cap there to craig gordon as well who was brilliant for hearts had that incredible first year for sunderland injuries kicked in and he was retired at 30 now he had a comeback and he went on to be really good for celtic and now he's back at hearts and again he's playing really well but i think craig gordon in that first season at at sunderland was probably a top three or four keeper in the league and had the potential to go on and play for one of the really top clubs. And then injuries kind of spoiled him. I will let you go through your defenders first and uh, and we'll see where we fall then. Okay, well, my goalkeeper alternative had nothing to do with injuries and that was uh, Mark Bosnich and his uh, off-field habits. Let's leave it at that. Uh, Defence. I know that we've overlapped on at least one of them, um, which is Ledley King. That's my first one. Uh, yeah. Phenomenal defender. Such a good player. Really, really intelligent. Positionally fantastic. Technically, at that time, one of the best centre-backs in the league. Uh, yeah. Obviously, very, very capable defensive mid as well. But injuries, I mean, he couldn't train by the end of his time with Spurs. And that time ended earlier than it should have done as well. And either side of him, uh, the other side of North London, I've got Thomas of Milan. Oh, good shout. Again, I thought he was a phenomenal defender at his peak. One of the very most consistent performers, really, really quality on the ball, very classy player to watch. 
And even after his injuries with Arsenal, he went to Barcelona and had two horrific years with just like coming back, pulled a muscle, coming back, pulled a muscle, coming back. And he just went on and on and on. But then when all the others were injured, he had a little spell there where he got back in the team and he played again superbly. And he was just one of those players who could come in and almost be at top level straight away. Really, really liked him, but it carried on at Barca, at Roma and everywhere else. Uh, and my third one was not so much injuries. I, I certainly don't think it was attitude which caused the drop off, but there were obviously problems later on at clubs where he, you know, they'd given him massive contracts. He wouldn't leave. They didn't know how to get rid of him or anything. But Micah Richards, another one mm. when he broke through, was a very, very impressive defender and he looked like he could be at the top for a long time and that didn't quite go to plan. Yeah, I mean, Michael Richards, people forget that when he first came along, he was he was outstanding and him and Vincent Company looked like they'd form City's defence for years. Could play right back as well and there was a tweet of mine that did the rounds among some of the more stupid Liverpool fans where I suggested that we should sign Michael Richards in like 2012 as an upgrade on Martin Skirtle. And to this day, I will stand by that, that Michael Richards in 2012 was a better defender than Martin Skirtle and that we would have been better off with him and our team than we were with, with Skirtle. But yeah, Michael Richards is a good shout. Thomas Vermeilen, for me, the most talented of all the Belgian centre-backs of the last decade, I'd include company, Vertonghen and Alderweireld. Uh, Vermeilen had everything, but injuries and, you know, just bad career moves, I suppose, hampered him. Um, my other two, I've got Danny. So I've got King on the right of my back three. I think he would have been the best of all of that group of English centre-backs. For me, streets ahead of Rio Ferdinand, streets ahead of Terry, but the injuries just killed him uh i've got danny agar on the left because we know what happened with him at liverpool we know the injuries that he had we know how good he was and we know how good he could have been there was a stretch where he stayed fit in the first season no was it the first season under roger yeah the first season under rogers and i think he was the best center back in the league for that stretch and like Vidic was still around, company was developing into what he would become. And I still think Agar was just absolutely in a class of his own. Brilliant on the ball, great organiser, great 1v1 defender, would figure out a striker. If he ever had a bad game against somebody, it would be the only bad game he'd have against them. Like the first time he played Drogba, Drogba ruined him. And the second time and the third time and the fourth time, Drogba never got a kick of the ball. And I remember seeing Carragher talk about how you know, he used to deal with Drogba. And I used to think, what on earth are you talking about? You never mark Drogba. Agar used to take Drogba and put him in his pocket. Um, <clears throat> in the middle, this might be a surprise to some people because he was a great player. But I think Paul McGrath, I think if Paul McGrath hadn't had the worst set of knees ever given to any human being ever, Paul McGraw would be talked about in the same breath as the elite of the elite. I'm talking your Berezis, your Beckenbauer's, your Bobby Moore's. I think he was that good. At 35, 36, he won PFA Player of the Year for Aston Villa. 
he was just outstanding and he could play as a holding midfielder as well he went to the 94 world cup right towards the end of his career and put roberto baggio at that time the best player on the planet in his pocket and carried phil bab through that world cup to such an extent that liverpool paid 3.6 million for phil bab i think if mcgrath hadn't had the injuries he would have played for like ferguson would have overlooked the drinking and just got on with him he also had obviously the drinking problems as well which Definitely harmed his United career. But yeah, Paul McGrath is my centre-back. So I've got King, McGrath and Agar. One other name I wanted to throw into the, the goalkeeper thing, because I know you like him as well, uh, Sergio Asenio, who had, what, oh, yeah. three ACL tears? Yeah. So unfortunate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very unfortunate. Um, this is a goalkeeper who was competing with at the time, uh, all Atletico Madrid's succession of keepers when they had the Gea and then uh, Cotuar and on and on it went. And he was as good as them. Uh, mm. No question about that. And four ACL Four in the end, yeah. I mean, really, really good goalkeeper. Definitely at his peak with Villarreal, I'd say on par with Reina at the very least, um, when he was fit and able to put a season together. But that's a long time to be out, even if it's, you know, a nine-month recovery period for yeah. them. That's a big chunk of career. Yeah, this, that is it. It's, it's four seasons, basically, that he's lost, um, which is just desperately unfortunate for such a talented keeper. Right, moving on. Um, wingbacks. Do you want to do your wingbacks next? Okay. Now, mine are very attack-minded. I've pretty much got a you know, a five rather than a five in midfield rather than a five in defence, let's say that. And I'm going to start with my right-sided one being Andy van der Meide. Oh, I like that. He was so talented. People forget he was so, so talented. Yeah, I mean, you know, we'll, we'll remember him as Liverpool supporters being at Everton, obviously, and it collapsing into nothingness there and it being marginally funny, I suppose, because of that. But... That whole group of players who came out of Ajax at the time, and it wasn't just Van der Vaart and um, Schneider as well, and there was Zlatan at the time, and they had Mido at the time as well, and a Johnny few other Heitinger. players who were really good. Johnny Heitinger was another one. Cedric van der Hoenu was there and really talented yeah. at the time. They had uh, the Czech midfielder um, Galasek at the time as well, who was... You know, for that that area defensive midfielder, he was a fantastic player as well. But van der Meder was probably the biggest star that they had for the style of football at the time, for the attributes that he had, ridiculously quick, really good manipulation of the ball, played all the way down that wing, obviously. And I'm not really sure how, how it went from that and looking like you know one of Europe's probably brightest young attackers in the game to go into absolutely nothing. And like awful by the end. The attitude obviously was not very good. There was not a good relationship at Everton. Minutes on the pitch weren't good. Uh, output on the pitch was negligible, if anything. I think was did he in fact get sent off against Liverpool, or am I making that up? Yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah, I think he did. Yeah, um, yeah, that that was a different player almost. It, it looked a completely different type of player to one who was actually at Ajax and very very good. Yeah, Andy van der Meter was special. I think he had, didn't he have a big drinking problem as well that he spoke about afterwards. But yeah, I mean, big big shame. Big, big shame. What, was Stephen Pienaar part of that IX crew, or have I imagined that? I think he was just after those. Yeah. I think Because he, he was at uh, IXCT at first, wasn't he? And then yes. I think he came across afterwards. 
Yeah, but uh, yeah, Andy Vanamade is a great shout. So he's on the right. I've got Darren Anderton on the right from from mine. Um, obviously not a natural wing back, but did play there for England a few times. I I always liked Darren Anderton. I thought he was a really good, hard working midfielder with good quality on the ball. Always seemed like he was a little bit too tall. Now he was only about probably six one, but he just always seemed like he was trying to grow into his body a little bit. And he had such bad fortune with injuries. But for Spurs, when when Ozzy Adilas was there and they had that incredibly, ludicrously attack-minded team with Anderton and Barnby in the wide roles and Sheringham and Dumitrescu behind Klinsman, and they were asking Jika Popescu to do all of the defensive work for all of them, they were a whole lot of fun to watch, and Anderton was just outstanding. And he's one half of the one of the two greatest corner routines the Premier League has ever seen. That short cutback to Teddy Sheringham, who'd catch it on the half volley, he nailed the delivery every single time, which tells you his technical ability. So, yeah, I've got Darren Anderton in there at right wing back. Uh, who have you got at left wing back? Still trying to decide, right? We're going to go with. Slightly out of position, but then everywhere he plays seems to be slightly out of position. Ravel Morrison. That's very out of position. But, but yeah, I mean. He's been left, uh, wing, left wing before, so he's going to He has, he back. has, to be fair. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Ravel. Ravel was was as highly, if not more highly rated than Pogba coming through the United Academy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've we've got quite a few here who have obviously been, you know, injuries has been the problem. So I was trying to move it around a bit. My basically my choices here for the left were either Danielson or Ravel Morrison at the end. So I'll go with Ravel. And I went with Daniel with Danielson, uh, which is kind of funny ah. that you, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Danielson, when I first saw him play, I thought I was witnessing the, you know, the birth of the greatest winger that the world had ever seen. And Real Betis clearly taught the same. They paid a world record fee, which, like, when you think about that now, Real Betis paying a world record fee for a player. Now, I mean, they don't even spend what they spent on him then on players now. So, you know, what a what a, a strange, strange situation. Yeah, the Nielsen was special. I did consider Rob Jones for both fullback spots because obviously, or both wingback spots, obviously his shin issues at Liverpool and then at West Ham kind of massively curtailed his career. If, if he hadn't gotten hurt, Gary Neville would have about four England caps. And... Um, yeah, Rob Jones, I think, is worth to mention. But yeah, I've got Anderton and Danielson as my as my wingers slash wingbacks. Uh, but with King, McGrath and Agar, I don't need any help defensively. Uh, move into central midfield with me then. I'll give you one and then uh, you can give this your two. Um, I went with Gaza because Newcastle Gaza and early Spurs Gaza might be the single most talented player English football has ever produced and maybe the single best midfielder England has ever produced. He was just, by himself, he could win a game from central midfield. He had 
everything that we both love in Kovacic and more. Then he had the knee injury. Now, obviously, he had, you know, issues beforehand with behavior and sort of off-field stuff. But the knee injury in the FA Cup final, the move to Italy, the lifestyle, the extravagance, the lack of supervision ruined his time at Lazio. Then he went to Rangers, where, with respect to Scottish football, even then, there was only one team he had to be in shape to play against, which was Celtic. <clears throat> Other than that, he could turn up half-pissed and still be the best player on the pitch. And then, obviously, he came to the Premier League far too late with Borough and with Everton. I think Burnley, he was there for a while as well. It was the tail end of his career, he was finished at that point. But Gaza, I think, injuries and off-field stuff spoiled his career. Yeah, no question about that. I mean, you know... It's obviously a much, much bigger issue and wider appreciated issue now than it was in the in the 90s and so on. But that is probably the epitome of a, a sports person in general who struggled to cope with the, the demands of the job. And mm. probably more so than that, the demands of when not having the job. I, I do think one of the big moments, one of the big sliding doors moments in English football history is him deciding to go to Tottenham rather than United. I wonder if he'd gone to United and had Ferguson basically as his, you know, watchdog, rather than going to Spurs where Terry Venables gave him like a free leash and London and everything that London has to offer, as opposed to, you know, Manchester in the late 80s and early 90s wasn't anywhere like the city it is now. I do wonder if maybe he could have harnessed that talent into what he, what he should have become. Yeah, maybe so. I mean, there's there's always so much to it. I mean, we've all seen loads of managers who have tried to be the one who sort of captures the magic part of certain players down the years. I don't want to say too many of them because they might come up in our forward lines and so on, but they don't always work. Even the managers who are famed as being ridiculously tough or ridiculously uh, great at man management or anything like that, it doesn't always work. Sometimes mm. you just can't. The players themselves obviously have to do part of it. The, the the people involved, sometimes it's just not the setup for them. So I guess we don't know. No, no, we don't. Right, you give me your two in midfield and then I'll give you my second one. Okay, one is uh, injuries and probably if you added together all the injuries of the players we've mentioned so far, not as many as this guy got, that's Abu Diaby. Oh, he's my other midfielder as well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, oh God. He, so unfortunate. Really ridiculously good player. So, so talented and would have been, I think, probably the best one of that final Arsenal team that was coming through under uh, Arsene Wenger. But, yeah, just just too many of them to deal with in the end. And my second midfielder, I'm going to go with. I'm going to go with Jack Rodwell in the end. Ooh, um, I like again, that one. I think, yeah, I, when when Rodwell came through, I I was very very jealous of Everton having him. Uh, he was a player who, similar sort of way to Gerard, was able to just completely run a game. He was going away from his team. He would be the one to just rampage across midfield, bully the other team, bring it back in. Big switches of passes, really able to carry it past people, and looked like he could go on and be a lot more. But 
I don't know if the injuries obviously played a part. Um, it seems that maybe by towards the end of the career, at least again, similar to Michael Richardson that he had contracts he didn't want to walk away from uh, rather than try to go somewhere where he could play more regularly or rediscover top form and fitness. And it just all disintegrated quite quickly, really, in the end. But to begin with, he looked like a player who could go on and win 50 England caps easy. Yeah, 100%. And he probably could have very comfortably slotted back to centre-back and done really well there as well because, you know, he just read the game so well. He was really quick, really good reactions. Um, Everton produced him, Rooney and and um, Barkley in about five, six years between the three of them coming through. And I was jealous of all three of them. And as it turned out, two of them never became close to what they should have been. And the other one left before he, what, I think he was 18 when Rooney left. So, you know, it didn't really benefit Everton in the, in, in the long run. But yeah, I, Jack Rodwell is is often a figure of, of laughter and dismissal. But people forget he was really really good when he first came through those first sort of 18 months he was really really special then the general malaise of Everton has sort of set in on him and then he obviously went to City um I think he got used to the money and the lifestyle and when he went to Sunderland he just didn't really care about football anymore so yeah that's unfortunate but yeah I went with Abu Dhabi I, I remember Abu Dhabi he'd been out injured for about three or four months and they came to Anfield and he absolutely ran the game in midfield. Hadn't kicked a ball in months, ran the game and he got taken off with about 10 minutes left or so. And uh, I think he got hurt and trained in the following week and we didn't see him again for another couple of months. So yeah, so unfortunate, absolutely outstanding player. Um, So we've got front threes left. I've got one player who's probably more of a midfielder than a front three player, but he's in my front three just to balance it out, I suppose. Uh, Sebastian Deisler, who I still think might be the most talented German player since the 80s, since like the Matthias and Klinsmann and Zammer and all those. I think Sebastian Deisler was so special. Kind of. I compare him to De Bruyne. He could play wide right. He could play tucked in in centre midfield. He could play every pass. Great crosser. Great set pieces. Really high IQ. Great vision. Special dribbler. I I think. And he had that build as well. He had that De Bruyne Gerrard type build and gait and that power when he decided to just attack people with the ball. Sebastian Deisler to this day, is one of the best players I've ever seen. And yet, between the knee injury and then the subsequent infections in the knee, then the mental health problems he had when he moved to Bayern, he wasn't ready for that move. Um, And, you know, he was retired by, I think, 27 or whatever. Um, Sebastian Deisler has to be in my team. Yeah, he was an unbelievable player. Really, really good. I mean... I can't remember which tournament it was that he was like one of the most important players in, in the German international team. He missed the World Cup, didn't he, the 2006, so maybe it was the... It would have been probably the 04 really? Euros. No. 
Year 2000, was it? Was it Year 2000? Yeah, it might have been Year 2000. I can't remember now. Anyway, it might even have been the lead up to yeah. some of them. But it was. I, it was Year 2000. Yeah. Yeah, I remember being being there for one of the games that he was at. I cannot remember at all who it was against now, to be honest. But he just ran the show. Like, like everything that you could imagine a, a really top attacker oh, doing, he did that. But was all it the, the Confederations stuff, Cup in 05? No, I've never been to a Confederations Cup. So oh. Definitely not that. Uh, anyway, it doesn't matter what game it was. There were lots of them. He was very, very good at And he was unstoppable when he was running with the ball. Like, he was mm. so quick at changing directions. Really, really good close control. Two-footed as well. And yeah, it's obviously, a, again, something that maybe if it had happened a decade later, even something like that, it, there would have been a lot more support for him. There would have been maybe a bit better medical capacity to recover from the injury. And obviously the support in, in off-field matters as well. So maybe he didn't have to retire as, as young as he did. But you know, for, for a while, at least, he was an unstoppable player. Mm. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, right, give me the first of your your front line then. Right, I have a choice of eight here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I have narrowed it down, to be fair. <laughs> From 20. <laughs> yeah. Right, my first one, I'm going to try and pick all different ones here. So I'm going to go only one with injuries, one with... Uh, other things, let's say, and then we'll see about the last one. So for the injuries player, I put this out there first. I'm not picking this guy, but I had suggested him first, and I got told that he doesn't qualify for this podcast because he didn't ruin his career or have it ruined for him. But he still didn't stay as good as he was, and that's Ronaldo. So I'm apparently not allowed to say him. Who said that? I didn't say that. No, 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 not you. This is someone I was discussing the team with before I came on air. He said he was oh, still okay. one of the best. So even though he would have been out of the stratosphere, he still doesn't qualify as having ruined his career because Ronaldo, proper Ronaldo, was still one of Yeah. I'm grudgingly accepting that. No, I'm disagreeing with someone else whoever instead. said that. I'm disagreeing <laughs> with whoever said that because, yeah, he's in mine. He, he's the nine okay, in mine. Fine. Because right, injuries well, and his love of the party... Yeah. Like when when Fabio Capello is screaming at you and you're not ashamed to be so fat, you know you've <laughs> gone wrong somewhere, you know. So yeah, I mean he's in mind. He he, without the injuries, he's probably the greatest player any of us have ever seen. I I don't honestly know that early the the PSV and Barcelona era of Ronaldo. I don't honestly know if even Messi. Hmm. I think maybe he does, maybe Messi, but it would have been so close. It would have been a lot more difficult for me to answer that question than Cristiano against Messi. So but remember as way. well, he also tore his ACL at PSV. Yeah. So, like, we don't even know what he would have been like without that injury, let alone <laughs> the, the patella tendon rupture that ruined his career. Well, it didn't, didn't ruin his career, but certainly capped where he could have hit. And then obviously, you know, the burgers and the, <laughs> and the parties and stuff. <laughs> cake affects us all yes um, yes it does right, i mean the, anyone that we pick now is going to be down on a level so this is this is going to feel like quite the bump going from ronaldo to uh dean ashton but oh, dean ashton was very very good forward a very good number nine uh lots and lots of goals lots of potential lots of hopes of playing for england and liverpool and whoever else but 
yeah, injuries stopped everything. Even after he came back from the first bunch of injuries, after those ones at West Ham, that was it, gone. It was like very, very good to absolutely nothing immediately. Yeah, it was so unfortunate because he was so, so good uh, at Crewe and then at Norwich, went to West Ham, was in, was called up for England, and he got hurt in training. Sean Wright Phillips. Sean Wright Phillips, the day before his what was meant to be his England debut, broke his ankle. And that was it. And he was retired at, what, 26? Yeah. Retired at 26. It, that is absolutely horrendous. A truly, truly outstanding young number nine whose career was just altered. At, at 23 when he hurt the ankle, that was it. Such a shame. That's a great shout. He, obviously, he's not Ronaldo, but he likely would have been England centre forward. He, he likely would have gone on and played for one of the top clubs and he would have scored a bundle of goals because that's what he did. Yeah, and it's a, a big, big loss for certainly for West Ham. But I think he probably would have stepped up another level after that, how he was playing pre injuries and everything there. A um, bit more of a, a couple of second forwards, I suppose, for the other ones. First of all, I'm going to go for someone who was unbelievably talented, but also apparently, according to things read and spoken, uh, a tool, I believe, is the uh, technical term for him. Adrian Mutu. Oh, yeah, twat. <laughs> yeah, super talented. Absolutely phenomenal for Parma. And came, comes to, to Chelsea, obviously, starts okay, hits the skids a bit, and then he gets done for failing the cocaine test. Now, I will point out, it's it's rather unusual. Now, you may have more insight on this than me, but in my entire time watching football and being able to remember as much as I possibly can, I don't remember too many players failing tests for cocaine. So it seems a little bit suspicious to me that one club would have two players fail tests for cocaine in such a short period of time. That seems a little bit suspect to me because like, I'm sure there's plenty of players who have done it and still do it. And yet, Maradona aside, I'm struggling to think of anybody who's failed the test, and yet Chelsea had two in a short period of time. It kind of says to me that they wanted rid of those players for maybe other reasons. Are you suggesting there was some sort of cultural... Uh... <laughs> what I'm saying what is if there was cocaine been snorted at Chelsea... <laughs> what I'm saying is if there was cocaine been snorted at Chelsea, it definitely wasn't just the Aussie... And the Romanian fella that was doing it. There was definitely others involved in that carry-on as well. Um, yeah, I mean, Mutu was Mutu was a really talented player. And obviously he went back to, to Italy and he ended up having a decent enough career. Never got back to the heights he should have reached. But yeah, he's meant to be an absolute prick as well. Yeah, I think that's probably the, the bigger issue of why they weren't too uh, bothered about fighting the ban, for example. Um, I remember, uh, I think it was um, Francesco Flatti, was it? The Sampdoria forward? Yes. 
got like years and years banned, didn't he? For four years for or something. Cocaine. That was recently. Yeah, that wasn't he? Doesn't he? A couple of years ago, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was like last year when it eventually came through, sort of thing. But yeah, that's a good show. I had forgotten about him actually. But yeah, I mean, that's the thing. That's that's him. Sixteen years after Chelsea get two in a couple of months. Yeah, it's a bit of an odd one. Um, so is that, what? So your front three then is. We've got the injuries with Dean Ashton. We've got the uh, class A drug abuse of uh, <laughs> Mutu. <laughs> um, and then I've got one more, and I'm not honestly sure whether to go with the, the pressures from elsewhere approach or the uh, seemed like a difficult sort to manage approach. Ooh. Well, I'll tell you what you do. Give me one of them, and then give mm. me the others that you had on your list anyway. I'll give All you right. my last one first, and then you because you've got quite a few on your list that yet yet you, you, you're considering. So yeah. this guy's still playing, and he still could make something of his career. But when I saw him at eighteen, I thought this guy was going to win multiple Ballon d'Ors, and it was going to be him and Mbappe as the two best players in the world for ten or twelve years. But he's immature. He's inconsistent. He's injury prone. He plays too many fucking video games. He doesn't seem to have any sort of grown up in his life to give him a clip around the ear. Uh, Usman Dembele, who he may, like I say, so he may well go on to have a good career, but this guy was like naturally two footed. Great balance, great speed, could, could shoot, could cross with both feet. They used to talk about when he was at Dortmund, he'd practice corners on his left foot. Then he'd go across and he'd practice corners on his right foot. He'd shoot free kicks with his left, shoot free Like, there's a lot of two-footed players. Like, Lalana was a relatively good two-footed player. He couldn't take corners off either foot. The only other one I can think of that could is probably Santi Cazorla. But Dembele had everything. And he's just tossing it all away. And, like... You hear of him being linked with Chelsea and you hear of him being linked to PSG and you just know he's going to end up at Newcastle. Like, you just know that the, the the end game is he ends up at Newcastle on a ridiculous contract and they can never, ever get rid of him. Yeah, it's frustrating uh, because he is a ludicrously talented player, not just technically good, but he has all the like the physical attributes that you could want mm. in that area of the park in, in modern football as well. So it's frustrating to see the way he's... But, as I have said several times on Dembele, I, I attribute quite a lot of this to the club as well, the culture, the the lack of support that he's had, the lack of leadership mm. that is there even within the dressing room. And obviously he has to take a large portion of responsibility for things he does himself. But you know, some people need guidance and Barcelona has not had any kind of structure in place for anybody to thrive, really, unless they were already the best player in the world. Yeah, that's exactly it. Um I do wonder how him going to PSG would work, considering the reports of his relationship with Messi at Barcelona were not exactly flattering, but that may well have been because Messi controls the media there and they have nothing good to say about somebody he didn't particularly well uh, think particularly highly of. Right, give me give me them. Who, who, have you got, who else have you got on your list? Give me, give me the whole list and we'll the figure out lot. who goes in. Yeah. Right. Uh, I've, I've got a... I've, I'll tell you who I was going to pick there. Um, I was going to choose. Now, I know like some people don't like him now or don't like his views now or don't like the way he puts across his views now because he's arguably more prominent now than he was towards the end of his career. But this guy, 
for the first few years and while he was at Liverpool and even after Liverpool at times was world class like on the ball on the pitch unbelievably good Stan Collymore oh yeah now he had he had a, a very meandering end to his career no question and he certainly in terms of his media work has put some people's nose out of joint and um, again no question but we're not talking about any of that stuff here this is about the career and that is just beyond reproach that he was such a good player he just talked about Dembele being two-footed this guy could do both things anything at all with both mm. feet he was so so good precision skill control power all of that in both feet so so yeah. good and obviously then ending up at Oviedo and Leicester and you know fire extinguishers and La Manga and whatever else he got up to was not the best use of it and number of England caps versus actual quality and goals was scandalous to be perfectly honest a hundred percent I was talking yesterday on two-footed about the year that Forrest had him and Brian Roy up front and they're to this day I, I still think they're one of the very best strike partnerships the league has seen but he had everything like you said I mean this guy was 6-2 built like a tank but yet he was rapid. He had incredible touch and control. His balance was phenomenal. And you just need to look at the goals he was scoring. He he could beat three men and smash one in the top corner from 25 yards. He could curl one in the top corner off his weaker foot, as he did on his debut for, for us, from 25 yards. He could score tap-ins. He could score with his head. He could score a bicycle. Remember, he scored that unbelievable bicycle kick for Bradford, I think it was. It was on Sky. I think he was. He might have even been there on a trial, and he scored that unbelievable bicycle kick. I, I always remember he left. I think he left. It was when he was leaving Villa, maybe, and he was looking for a new club. And I think it was Real Sociedad were interested in him, but they wanted him to go on trial. And he came out with the line, "I'm an international footballer, and international footballers don't go on trials." And he had played three times for England. And uh, as as it turned out, within a few months, he was on trial at Bradford. So, yeah, I mean, like the fact that his career as a, a top level player for all intents and purposes was over when he was like 27 after that first season Villa. It, it's it's very, very, it's very, very hard to, to, to take considering how good he could have been. But, yeah, Stan Collymore, absolutely. I. I'd nearly bounced them belly out of my team just to get Collymore in. He was he was brilliant. Yeah, fantastic player. And uh, I, I think I pretty much remember as well after, I think it was like 2001 when he left Oviedo, basically. And I think it was then the World Cup in maybe would it been 2006, something like that. He said he didn't really see any players around who were capable of doing or forwards around who were capable of doing what he could still do at the time and he was going to try and get himself a, a contract to get back again uh, and playing which basically ended then because uh, Oviedo still held his registration from when he retired Yeah, the, Stan's um, grasp on reality has never been the strongest I will say I do, I do th- I, at times I do find myself agreeing with certain things that he has to say but uh yeah, for the most part, I tend to to try and avoid the the views and opinions of of Mr. Stan Collymore. 
Stanley Victor Collymore's parents did him no favors at all. They named him after an eighty-year-old man. Um, right. Right. I, 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 I have there. a few more, and I'm gonna I'm gonna throw them at you really quickly, and you get uh, let's say forty-five seconds to talk on each one. Antonio so, Cassano. Attitude spoiled what should have been one of the great Italian careers. He was the natural successor to Baggio and Totti and Del Piero, but he was an absolute prick. He may be a top 10 all-time prick in the history of the game. And when even Capello can't deal with you, there's something wrong with you. Uh, One who you may have seen in the very youth days, um, which is when I saw him, and basically by the end of his youth days, his senior career was also pretty much done. Freddie Adu. The most overhyped player, I think, in the history of the game at, like, what, 14? We were told this kid was the the new Pele. He was going to be this. He was going to be that. He was linked to absolutely everybody. I think he wasn't drafted into the MLS at 16 or something stupid. First draft of DC. You could never, he could never, ever live up to what he was made out to be. And none of it is his fault. He didn't handle the pressure well, but none of it is his fault. Two things I would say. One is that uh, it didn't help him being put into the uh, United States national team straight away at that point as well. And secondly, and whether this is down to him or people who were deciding for him at that time, the moves that he made after that DC spell were dreadful. You don't go to Benfica. You're not ready for that. And some of the loans obviously were, were very, very poor as well. So much better could have been done then he was very very skillful if anyone mm. ever actually got to see him you know other than you know, on the computer games that kind of thing he was a really really skillful very very quick sort of forward but at that age a lot of kids look that way um stefan jovetic super talented ferociously unlucky with knee injuries and you know still knocking about still still does bits still looks a good player but yeah, he, he should have been a lot more. The injuries really did kill him. Mohamed Kalon. Mm. He should His have been more than he... Inter, he was great. Yeah, that's true. But I don't know. There was always something about him that made me wonder if it was all about to just blow up. Like, one way or the other, if he was about to explode and have this incredible rise... Or if he was just going to implode and and just be catastrophic. As it turned out, it was the latter. Uh, A ban again there. Not for cocaine, though. Only for Nandrolo. So that's that's probably an improvement. Mm. Um, And then two outside the forward line, who I skipped over entirely in the end. David Bentley. Yeah, Bentley, Bentley was better as a big fish at a small club. So he was better at Blackburn, where, you know... Just some players just like that. I think Jack Grealish is another one like that. I just think he needed the ball a lot, and I don't think he suited playing in high-pressure situations like at Arsenal early and then at Spurs. And finally, Man City's Michael Johnson. I I loved Michael Johnson when he first broke through. Him and Stephen Ireland were just loads of fun to watch. And Ilano was there as well. And um, he just, again, injuries, the hip injury. And then mental health issues and obviously not having anybody around him to sort of steer him in the right direction. But whatever he's doing now, I think he works in real estate. I do hope he's happy and has found peace because I know for a couple of years he seemed to be teetering on the edge. 
And it was very, very tough to see. And people wouldn't leave him alone, leave the guy alone, let him live his life. And I hope he's happy. That's it. I, I just hope he's happy. But yeah, what, what a player. He, he was unbelievably good. Fantastic talent. Really, really talented player. Uh, I think probably the best one out of all of those who came through at the same time, along with Michael Richards, who we mentioned earlier, Stephen mm. Ireland, and a couple of the others who were there at the time. And uh, pretty much sums up the fact that there is a big, big difference in why some of these careers go off the rails and not much you can do about all of them, in contrast to the likes of Adrian Mutu's approach. Exactly, exactly. Here's a good one for you. Uh, Mohamed Kalon, right? That season you're talking about at Inter, that's the... Uh, 01-02 season, I think, where he was really good for them. Um, he was 22 years of age. He was with his 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, ninth club at 22 years of age. So he's an example of uh, really bad advice from dumb agents. We're going to leave it there at that because Mr. Matchett has to go and do some of the big J journalism. Carol, thank you as always. Anything you want to plug quickly before you go? I have the uh, Cats Jones piece out on the independent. If people want to go and check that out, a little look at how he has stepped up again, probably for the second time this season in terms of spells. Uh, hopefully this one lasts a bit longer. And you can follow Carl on Twitter at Carl Matchett. Read his work in the independent and on This Is Anfield. Follow Guy at Guy Drinkle and uh, listen to the Two-Footed podcast every day at 4pm and the Daily Red every day around lunchtime. New podcast on the books with Trev Downey. The first one is out now reviewing Simon Cooper's The Football Men. Give that one a listen and we will see you next time. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement and we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show. The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. You won't regret it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index and find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network.